0: Welcome, welcome to all here on our Ridgely Road campus and all those who are vacationing and are online. We are one faith community, sharing our faith in Jesus Christ. It's great to have you with us. If you're here in our campus, we invite you, if it's your first time or you've been away a while or coming back or whatever, just visiting, to come to the Welcome Center on the Concourse after this Mass for a little welcome packet that we have for you. We'd love to know who you are and welcome you personally. Speaking of welcoming, uh-uh, who's this guy? I want to introduce Jack Guidera. Jack Guidera is a missionary for FOCUS, that's Fellowship of Catholic University Students, acronym FOCUS, and he's a missionary at the University of Virginia. So he's going to be with us after mass to kind of answer any questions and to share his love for the missionary work he's doing, getting kids in college to go to church to receive the sacraments. And so he's going to tell us what happened, happened the last year, and kind of wants to thank us for uh, our supporting of him. So if you've got a few minutes, just stop by the pavilion after Mass, and he'll greet you personally and share some thoughts with you. Welcome, Jack. Good to have you with us. Thank you. really something else, let me tell you. One more quick announcement, today is Grandparents' Day, so we're gonna be on the, uh, out on the, uh, the patio, no, out on the uh, plaza, <laughs> patio plaza, to uh, bless grandparents. So if you're a grandparent or a great-grandparent, Father Michael White and I will be out there blessing you on this very special day, right after Mass. So, for those who like summaries of where we've been the past five weeks, because this is the sixth and final week of our first summer series, I thought I'd just give them to you in summary. Every one of those weeks had something to do with bread and wine, so even in the earliest account in Exodus we see Melchizedek, a mysterious kind of guy who's a priest and a king, who brings bread and wine to Abram, who's going to become Abraham, uh, to thank him for the victory uh, that he uh, experienced. And then in week two, We were trusting in the words of Jesus when he says, do you, Nicholas, believe this is my body, this is my blood? And if I can trust him and I can believe his words, there's something really super there for me in receiving communion. The third week, we went on this road to Emmaus, where you've got two disciples disillusioned because Jesus has died, and they're walking along with a stranger. Unbeknown to them, it's really Jesus, They have some pity for the stranger say, well, why don't you stay with us and have dinner? Again, we see bread and wine from Melchizedek's days, Genesis, to now, bread and wine in uh, the road to Emmaus. Jesus blesses the wine, blesses the bread. They realize who it is, and he vanishes from their sight. We saw that in week three. Week four... We see Jesus instituting the first Eucharist way back when at the Last Supper. We're going to see today how that Eucharist connects to this Eucharist. Quite an interesting feat. And then we saw in week five Paul's meaning of the mystery. He took us deeper, deeper, deeper into understanding with a little theology how this all happens and what takes place in our eating and consuming of it. So that's a quick history of where we've been. With the idea of the Eucharist is firmly established, I want to talk about how this table relates to your table, and your tables are many. And so the question comes up, the four C's. Do the four C's apply to the altar and both tables, my home, as well as the altar? They do. The connection this is the first of the four C's, is that the flesh and blood of Jesus becomes me and I become the flesh and blood of Jesus to the table at dinner this afternoon or this evening. It's also the idea of community, that the living, breathing body of believers here becomes the living, breathing body of believers in my home at our own table. Third, the third C, the empowerment of Christ's presence here becomes the ability to forgive, to forget, to love, to be there with those at the table at home. We're empowered by Christ's presence to be Christ's presence there at home. And then finally, continuity. Becoming his body for others, we kind of have those others look forward to another meal, or another Sunday meal, or another time to be together as family. So the four C's really apply to both the altar and the the, uh, the, the issues at home. Now finally, with this I'm going to show you two paintings that we've been doing every week that talk about your tables as different tables, different and diverse, one from another. So let's look at the first, uh, the first table we're going to talk about. It's called It's by Edward Hooper, and it's called Chop Suey. Hooper painted this in 1928. Chop Suey, kind of a strange name for what we see here. Is this a Chinese restaurant? No, it's not. A little history. Hooper's restaurant paintings reflect the the shifting role of women in the workplace in the 1920s. Women were becoming people in the workplace as well, and Chop Suey Joints taverns, and cafes were places where the, the new female workforce was most welcome. Most welcome. And yet, take a look at these, this woman in this picture. The woman facing us is the painting's focal point. Although the scene takes place in a social environment, notice that there's a sense of loneliness, isolation that's prevalent. She's facing us and she's sitting with her companion, but does she, she doesn't seem to Connecting with her. The figure is isolated, she's withdrawn, she's reserved within herself. Even though we get a full view of her face, there's a certain detachment to her and Hooper accomplishes, accomplishes this, by the way, with the stark makeup he has on her. So I ask you, what word or words would describe the scene for you? Would it be isolation, lonely in a crowd, attempt at connection, apathy, dis-ease, tension, vulnerability? So we have two women companions having tea in a chop suey place where, as part of the new female workforce, they're welcome, and yet, she doesn't look very welcomed to me. And to make the point, our meals, our family meals, are Meals at Mass each Sunday can feel like the chop suey place. We can feel down or disconnected or distracted. So whatever word came to your mind when you saw that painting, just hold on to it. We're going to need it in a while. Let's look at the final picture. It's one you're very familiar with, and it has a capacity to kind of warm your heart. It may call to mind less thanksgiving, or Thanksgiving's Past when loved ones gathered around a table resplendent with roasted turkey. It's called Freedom from Want and it was painted by Norman Rockwell in 1943. So what would be a description of this scene? The role of mother and father? Abundance. The joy of giving thanks. The importance of tradition. Memories power of eye contact around the table. Well, the painting is about freedom from want, not freedom for excess, and the joy there is in sharing what we have with those we love. Interesting fact about the painter. Three marriages. It was Rockwell's third and last marriage that was most tranquil for him. He died in 1978. And one art critic claims Rockwell painted his happiness, but he never lived his happiness. Thanksgiving meals can be like that. Your meals can be like that. This mass as a meal can be like that. Paints Paintings of our happiness, but not living our happiness. The quote reminds us that even our special meals on a holiday, an anniversary, a birthday, whatever it is, or even this meal on any given Sunday may occasion both positive and negative feelings for us. We may look happy, yeah, but there are many hindrances to our joy. To treat to that reality, the man in the lower right-hand corner I've highlighted in blue. He seems to be inviting us into the scene to answer the question, might your holiday meals, your Sunday mass time, Be filled with mixed emotions? And if so, might you ask yourself, what can I do to make a difference here at mass or my next holiday gathering? So both of today's paintings help us see the light and darkness that are part and parcel of many of our meals and to forthrightly respond to the highlighted man's question to us. Nicholas, Barb, Barbara, Bill, at your table, here and at home, the four C's come to mind. The question is, is there connection there and here? And if no, what can you do to make a difference there and here? Is there, a the second C, community? Is there a sense of oneness here? And if not, what can i do to make it one more feel like more like one or at my home as well is there the third c communion the empowerment of what i've done here does that get reflected at home is the communion here come union around our table and finally the fourth c continuity will this meal join me to the meal here next Sunday. Will Sunday dinner today join me to Sunday dinner next Sunday or during the week? Over the past five weeks, we've seen how special meals share some of the characteristics with the Mass, the connection of table here to table there. We've seen some revealing of the mystery of just how Jesus is truly present from Melchizedek to this table present in bread and wine. But you know, there's still a part of the mystery that needs to be revealed. Still a part of the mystery that needs to be revealed and that's what we turn to now. The question, how does what we do each week at this altar connect to what Jesus did at the last supper with bread and wine? What's the connection? Are we just repeating a past action through 2,000 years of history, remembering it? Well, to help us unravel this last piece of the puzzle, we need to call on St. Peter for the answer. For starters, Peter's life is a series of false starts, of denial, of coming to faith, and eventually full commitment to Jesus Christ. In a sense, it's the same for us. It's our own coming to a deeper faith in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord, as our Savior. This sequence of events for Peter and his relationship to Jesus are the key to the mystery of the connection that makes this meal and that meal we call the Last Supper one continuous, living, thriving, flourishing event. Peter's introduced to us as an unpolished Fisherman, for sure. By nature, he's depicted as rash, hasty, irritable, capable of great anger. We've seen it. Yeah, so are we, by the way. And yet often, he's pictured as gentle and firm. And as in his professions of love to Jesus, he's capable of great loyalty, as are we. You might say this connection of this table here to the table of the Last Supper God has chosen a frail, imperfect individual. Well, we don't feel alone, that's for sure. So the question is, looking at Peter and the stages he went through to get us from there, that table of the Last Supper, to here, we're going to look at three stages of transition, of transformation rather, that have an impact on us, very real way Today, So first, there is Peter the denier. Peter the denier. Peter was one of the earliest followers of Jesus. He left his, everything regarding his fishing trade to become a disciple and eventually an apostle. Luke tells us that to Jesus' invitation to follow him, Peter responds full-throated, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Yeah, huh. Okay, well, we also know that one of the apostles, one of the twelve, he was the first to deny that he even knew Jesus. And Jesus declares his, and he declares just as he declares his fidelity to Jesus in the verse that follows, Jesus counters with some very harsh words. Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. He denied three times. Did you even know me? Interesting fact. Around a fire, while Jesus is being hauled before Caiaphas on trial, there's a fire. And around that fire, Peter denies him three times. The wonderful thing about Scripture is there's all these little hidden things because there's a second fire. The first fire is denial. The second fire is after the resurrection by the Sea of Galilee. Around a fire... Eating broiled fish, Peter professes his love of Jesus. And Jesus says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. First fire, denial. Second fire, he's there reinstated. Three denials become three affirmations. So, Peter the denier, really clear. The second is that there is Peter the rock. Peter the rock. Now, Jesus gives him the name Peter because the rock in Greek is Petra. The rock in Latin is Petrus. Petra, Petrus. In both ancient languages, it's the word for rock. It's chosen specifically by Jesus, and Jesus names Peter that, the rock. Clearly, he knew what he was doing. Even with this very flawed and human being, he's building a community of believers on the rock. A rock. But, you know, Jesus couldn't chance it, so when he and the disciples come to the region of Caesarea Philippi in the north, Jesus asks them all this question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And he presses Peter in particular, because... Who do people say becomes but you, Peter. Who do you say? Ah. So he goes from the 12 to Peter. There's some singling out. There's some intentionality on Jesus' part. What's interesting is that Peter responds full-throated with this stunning response. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now notice... All three evangelists, the synoptics we call them, record these words, word for word. The denier has become the rock. And finally, kind of topping it all off, is Peter the pastor. Peter the pastor. With Peter's stunning response, which we just heard, Jesus then commissions. So Jesus has some security, he's gonna be the rock, Jesus has tested him. He's responded, Messiah. And now, he's going to commission him with these words. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. This isn't your idea, even your generous response. It's my Father in heaven. And so I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus was to add to his commission now not only the names Peter, the foundation of the church, but how, how, as the leader, Peter is to exercise that leadership. Recall the three times again. Jesus tells Peter, feed my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my lambs. He's now the chief shepherd and feeder down through the centuries, and this is the connection I want to make clear. As I already mentioned, the threefold denial of Peter the night he's arrested is reversed in the threefold commissioning him, shepherd, to feed the flock. So we've seen him as denier, rock, and now shepherd. All qualities that will serve him well as the connector between the Last Supper and this table. That we just witnessed to in the last hour. The connection. The old adage certainly applies to Peter, that God doesn't call the qualified. Uh-uh. He qualifies those he's called. So, as as imperfect as Peter is, he's called and he's anointed. Let's look briefly then. Oh, there's also Rick Warren that comes to mind. He said, When God appoints you he also anoints you. So, I want to now look at the connection. We see Peter established. We now look at the connection between Peter and the Last Supper and this table before us. In the practice of his role of chief shepherd, that role continues down through the ages. So, let's give you a little timeline here. Down through the ages. So, first, Peter becomes, by Jesus, the chief shepherd, the chief giver, feeder of flocks. And he becomes the bishop of Rome. And he's the first among many succeeding equals. He nevertheless remains the first among equals. In Latin, we say that Peter is primus inter pares, the first among equals. So there's a lot of people, apostles initially, the 12 apostles, who are all the rank of bishop, if you will, and they're all bishops, but Peter is the bishop of Rome, and that's why he's primus inter pares, equals, but he's first. Thus, we have Peter the Rock, Peter the first bishop of Rome, succeeded, catch this, by 260 bishops of Rome to Pope St. Francis, Pope St. Francis, Pope Francis today. I've already made him a saint. <laughs> what power. So, so Peter, from the Peter to Pope Francis, unbroken line of 260 popes. Let me put that on the timeline, very important. No breakup, no discontinuity, complete connection. And those 260 popes, each naming and appointing bishops throughout the world Bishops throughout the ages, right down to the naming and appointing of our very own Archbishop Laurie by Pope Benedict in 2012 as the 16th Archbishop of Baltimore. One single unbroken line through 2,000 years of wars, insurrections, the Protestant Reformation, the Enlightenment, and today the widespread rejection of religion in our present day. 2,000 years. Unbroken. What religion can claim that? And our local bishops, appointed by the Pope, ordaining priests like Father White and like me to celebrate the Eucharist with and for us, God's people, from Jesus at the Last Supper to this Sunday's Mass. Pope Francis, empowered through Michael, through myself. One Catholic Church has a rich, unbroken connection between that bread and wine of the Last Supper, this bread and wine of the Mass we just celebrated. Pretty impressive, I have to say. The Catholic Church has this unbroken connection. The very hands of Jesus, consecrating bread and wine of the Last Supper, come down through history 2,000 years, and in these hands, and Father White's hands, Consecrating bread and wine and you receiving it. How great is that? It's time, my friends, to conclude this first of our summer series. We leave it declaring unequivocally that the Sunday Eucharist is Jesus' very feeding of us with his own flesh and blood. Unlike any other food that we eat, this food becomes our own flesh and blood. In eating, we become what we eat, the Lord Jesus himself. And where do we go? To our tables, so that this table empowers us for those tables. And if you've been away from the Eucharist for whatever reason, apathy, unforgivable sin, ongoing fault you can't shake, then it's Peter's your kind of guy. Sinful, contrite, reconciled, transformed. If that's your situation, then Jesus' words are for you. Bill, Barbara, Barry, do you love me? Feed, be fed, feed others. Why would you ever miss a chance for the very bread from heaven, this kind of food, this kind of nourishment? So I ask you, will I see you here next Sunday? Let the church say amen? amen. Are you sure? Amen. amen? And the Sunday after that? Amen. And the Sunday after that? I think you got it, and that's a commitment. It's more than a handshake. It's a testimony to your love of Jesus Christ. Be assured that Jesus will be here every week for you. The question, of course, is will you be there for him and for us? Let us pray. Gracious God, you have given us six weeks to connect the dots and uncover the mystery of your love for us. In your creating us out of love, you gave us your son Jesus as the way to overcome our weaknesses, express our love in return. As if that were not enough, Jesus gave us his flesh and blood to sustain us each week in our return to you. What joy that is. In the Eucharist of this altar, we are fed each week to return to the table of our home to continue that feeding, not just with physical food, but with spiritual nourishment that our relationships offer us. Help us to experience the table of the Lord and the table of our home as one. Tables where Jesus is present as our silent guest. May we continue to treasure the feeding at this altar and the feeding in our homes. We pray in gratitude through Christ our Lord. Amen. And as we close this six-week series, let us now stand and sing. Thanks for watching. Be sure you hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss a thing. You can be part of our mission to love God, love others, and make disciples by sharing this video. We're grateful that you're part of this community.